Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Did you hear the very last thing that Tom just said? He said as he finished his prayer, and we ask all this in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of where we're going to begin this evening. I touched on a subject last week as we looked at Solomon saying to his son, follow my commands, pay attention and keep my commandments. And I mentioned in passing that there was a great theological significance to that. And the only reason we're going to talk about it again for just a moment is that chapter 3 begins again with Solomon saying, in your heart, keep my commandments. Chapter 4 starts with, listen to the instruction of your father, give attention that you might have understanding, and do not abandon my instruction. So this idea of my instruction, my commands, my directives, when we read that, we have no problem understanding that Solomon is speaking of his own commandments, his own directives. He's not speaking of the Ten Commandments. We understand that instantly, the differences between them. And even though you're going to see that some of the commands that he gives, some of the instruction that he gives, follows along the line of the Ten Commandments, but he's still not quoting directly from the Ten Commandments. He's just simply saying, follow my instruction. I spend uh, probably too much time on the computer, and uh, a certain amount of social media, I get a lot of emails, I, I read the debates, I listen all the time, and there's a tremendous amount of confusion out in the professing evangelical world about uh, that old covenant, new covenant distinction. And that's why a couple of Sundays ago, I spent a whole morning trying to clear up the confusion about whether we are or are not under the Ten Commandments, because so frequently people will say we're not under the law anymore, but we're still under the Ten Commandments. And I just watched a video from a very well-known pastor, showed it to Janine, and I said, boy, he just, he really stepped in it this time. Very popular, well-known, reformed guy who really just doesn't know what to do with the Ten Commandments. And so he put out a little six-minute video where he was advocating that Christians are still responsible to keep the Ten Commandments. We're still under the Ten Commandments. And he took that aside from the rest of the law and called it the moral law and said we're still responsible to follow the moral law. Of course, the comments all went to the natural place. The comments all went to, well, then what do you do about the Sabbath? You need to explain that. You need to explain the Sabbath to us. If we have to keep the Ten Commandments, then you have to be keeping the Sabbath. And it's not good enough to just say, oh, well, Sunday is now the Sabbath. You have to explain how we are actually keeping the Sabbath holy. How are we keeping Saturday holy if we're keeping the Ten Commandments? Anyway, that is why I have taken the time recently to try to say 
Jesus, the new lawgiver, also gave commandments. He also spelled out new rules. And as Steve, I think, pointed out when we were talking about that, Jesus even said, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Because being the new lawgiver, the one that Moses had predicted, he had the right to hand out commandments that were his own. Which is why he could say things like, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard that said, but I say. And so this idea that we're supposed to keep the Ten Commandments is very frequently shored up and apparently bolstered by people online who say, well, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And they assume that what that means is, if you love me, keep the Ten Commandments. So turn to the book of John for a second if you want to read along with me. Go to John 14, and we will start reading right around verse 13, and I think it's going to be really obvious to you. The same way that it's obvious when Solomon says to his son, keep my commandments, that he's not talking about the Ten Commandments, he's talking about his own commandments. It's similarly just as obvious when Jesus says it, when you look at the context. If you take verse 15 out of the context and just say, well, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, then that almost sounds, if you don't understand the differentiation between my commandments and the Ten Commandments, commandments of Moses, if you don't understand that, it really can sound like Jesus did say, keep the Ten Commandments if you love me. But that's not what he said. Look at the context. Let's start reading at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Now notice the amount of self-referential language here. Jesus speaks over and over here in the next few verses about me, I, my. Pay attention to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I shall do, he shall do also. And greater works than these he shall do because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name or by my authority, that I will do so that the Father will be glorified in the Son. So he refers to himself as the Son and in my name, by my authority, I'm the one who's going to do it. You need to believe in me. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you see what the center of attention is here? He's putting himself front and center of the religious universe and saying, what you think of me determines your entire eternity. That's why he said things like, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. It was all about him. It's in that context that he says, and if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if you just pay attention to the pronouns, if you pay attention to the I go to the Father, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I'm going to perform that. If you love me, then keep my commandments. It's very obvious contextually that Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll do what I say. And what he says is different than what Moses said because of how frequently he says, you've heard it said. And then he quotes the law. And then he says, but I say. 
And if people could get that right, if they could differentiate between the old and the new covenant and really see the distinction between the two, that the new covenant is not just a rubber stamp of the old covenant, then they're going to be truly free from the law because the idea that Jesus said, if you love me, keep the Ten Commandments, leads to the confusion where people say, well, you know, Paul says that we're dead to the law. Paul says that the law was nailed to the cross, taken out of the way. But obviously he can't really mean that. He can't mean that the law is entirely gone. We must still be under the law to some degree because, after all, Jesus said, if you love me, keep the Ten Commandments. But it's not what Jesus said, and it's really important that we pay attention to the words. He said, if you love me, as opposed to any religious person prior to me, whether that's Abraham, and he said, the greater than Abraham is here. Whether that's Moses, he's the new lawgiver that Moses pointed to and talked about. He's the greater son of David. Whoever you're going to point to in the history of Israel and their religion, he's saying, I'm greater than all of them. And if you love me, you'll do what I say as opposed to what they said. And there is tremendous freedom and clarity and understanding of the Bible if you get that right. Once that clicks in your brain, you realize, oh, I really am free from the law. I, okay, the law has absolutely no binding. On. Okay, good. Which is why Paul could say, we're not lawless. We're under the law of Christ. It's different. There's still a law. We still follow that law. It's just not the Moses law. We're free from that. And being free from the Moses law, including the Sabbath, by the way, means that we're also free from the curse that is attendant with that law. Because part of that law says that if you don't perform it perfectly, perpetually through your whole life, that God will curse you for not doing it. And so there's all kinds of theological tap dancing that people do and end up saying, well, we're not under the curse of the law, and Jesus became a curse for us, but we're still under the requirements of the law in some way. But if there are requirements, then that means you have to do them. What's the penalty if you don't do them? Oh, there's no penalty anymore. It's just all really confusing. Okay, so why don't we tithe? Because we're not under that covenant. Why don't we have to keep Sabbath? Because we're not under that covenant. Why don't we commit adultery? Well, because we're not under the covenant of the Ten Commandments, but the law of Christ in the new covenant equally says don't commit adultery. How clear is that? And so if we just follow the rules of Christ, we know that we're free from the law of Moses. I just wanted to state that one more time because of the amount of confusion that I see out there in the internet Christian world that can't seem to get those distinctions correct. We're in Proverbs chapter 3. That's where we're beginning. The first part of chapter 3, when contrasted with the last part of chapter 3, fits very well with what we've been saying the last few Sundays out of the book of Romans. Not a surprise, because I contend that the entire book, from Genesis to Revelation, was all written by the Holy Spirit through various different authors 
over the course of thousands of years, but it all fits together very well because it was one author in the end. So what I mean is in chapter 3 of Proverbs, you're going to see Solomon saying, gain wisdom. Wisdom is a valuable thing, more valuable than anything. Wisdom leads you to the fear of God. So then fear God and turn away from evil. And then he talks about the value of doing that. And then transitions right from wisdom and the fear of God to practical advice about how to live. And as we've said over and over and over again, the Bible deals with indicatives and imperatives. And the imperatives always follow the indicatives. In other words, so much of modern religion gets it wrong and says that you have to do stuff in order to be saved. But Paul's language and the Old Testament language, the consistent Holy Spirit language is God does save. Now that you are saved, here's some imperatives. Now go do this. Do it in response to the fact that God has chosen you, that God has saved you. And you're going to see that same thing here in the Proverbs. It's going to start out in chapter 3 with Solomon saying, gather wisdom, fear God, react to God accordingly, but now that you're in that relationship with God, live like it. Also walk in such a way that it's obvious that you honor God in the way you live which is very much like what we've been saying for weeks now out of the book of Romans. So, all right, that's all the introductory stuff. Before we're done with chapter 3, we're even going to end up back in the New Testament again. We'll end up in the book of Hebrews for a little while tonight. And if we get through the chapter, that will be a good night. We are in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. By the way, why would he even say that? I contend that when the Bible says things like that, it indicates things that human beings are prone to do. Like you won't find anywhere in the Bible that says, breathe regularly. You're you're just going to do that. You're not going to forget to do that. But the Bible says repeatedly, pay attention. Remember. Don't forget. Hold on to these things. Cling to these things. These are the important things in life. My son, don't forget my teaching. Obviously, he knows that human beings are prone to forget. Because we all will hear the word of God and say, yes, absolutely. Oh, that really moved me. That's real. Boy, that's really in me. And by the next morning, you kind of forget what that was about. And you go back to being the way you've always been and. The word of God is meant to form you, to shape you, to conform you to the image of Christ. So Solomon writes, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Because here's why you should remember my teaching and keep my commandments. Because they will add length of days and years to your life. If you're wise, if you follow the things that Solomon has taught, he says, that's going to lead to long life and peace they will add to you. Now, some translations translate that word peace as prosperity, and it has to do with well-being. So length of days and well-being during your life 
is going to be added to you if you just pay attention to his commandments. Do not let kindness, here's the first of those, do not let kindness and truth leave you. I put that up on uh, Facebook last week just to see what kind of reaction it would get to the generally contentious Facebook world. I just quoted Proverbs 3.3, do not let kindness and trust leave you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tables of your heart. So in practical terms, in walking through this world, in dealing with other humans, what did Solomon say was foremost in the way you should deal with other people? Be kind and be truthful. Be good to people, but be honest with people. And if you're like that, if you bind those around your neck, if you write them on the tablets of your heart, verse 4 says, you will then find favor, a good reputation in the sight of God and in the sight of men. So both God and man are going to look on you favorably if you remember that in your dealings with other people, to be kind and to be honest, to be truthful with them. Which sounds very much like Jesus saying, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love one for the other. That that love, that sacrificial love for one another is going to exemplify itself in the fact that you're going to be kind to each other. You're going to be sacrificial toward each other, and you're certainly going to deal with each other honestly, truthfully. So you're going to find favor and good repute in the sight of God and in the sight of man if you don't let kindness and truth leave you. And then as part of his wisdom commands, again, he goes instantly where he always goes. In the pursuit of wisdom, it starts with the fear of the Lord. It starts with the knowledge of God. So verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust God with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. Okay, I've received, I'm going to say, nine, maybe ten emails in the last two days from a fellow who I do not know. I know nothing about him. He writes to me in these very short one-sentence emails things like, how can I be saved? Things like, if it's true that seed falls on the dry, parched ground, and then it shrivels up and the devil chases it away, that's me. That's what's happened to me. And so he's been writing all these things to me, and I sat today and wrote him back a single email where I responded one by one to each of those one-sentence things, because it's easier to just write one email than ten separate emails. And by the end of it, I was essentially saying this. I was saying, you're, you're spending all of your time and all your questions are based on gazing at your own navel. You're spending so much time looking at yourself that, of course, you've discovered there's nothing good in you. And you're trying to figure it out according to your own understanding and comprehension of you. you got to get your eyes off you. And I'll tell this to anybody and everybody. This is the point. Get your eyes off you. Get your eyes on Christ. Trust him and don't lean on your own understanding. Because if you 
by your own understanding, by your own comprehension, are trying to make you good enough to be accepted by God. If you, according to your own understanding, are setting a standard that you're going to strive for, thinking that if you can just hit that standard, then God's going to accept you. If you think that your particular understanding, interpretation of one section of God's word is sufficient to condemn yourself or even save yourself, you're doing the very thing that Solomon has said don't do. Don't lean on your own understanding. And the only way that you can eliminate that self-referential understanding is to trust God wholly and completely. Trust the finished work of Christ. Trust what God has done. Trust that God chooses and saves people since before the foundation of the world. Trust that the work is finished. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Now, when Solomon says that, he's talking to people who are under the law of Moses. And he's saying, just do what God has said to do, trusting that God is going to take care of you. And don't try to sort it out yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't worry about what the multiple different uh, rabbis have said and how they have parsed away at the law and whether they've argued over chickens and eggs and work on the Sabbath and everything else. You can, human beings can, get too smart for their own good. We can reach the point where we think we've got it figured out and we become the standard for us. And he said, don't do that. Don't think that you are the arbiter of truth. Trust God wholly and completely and don't lean on your own understanding. I think I could take that a step further and say, recognize that you, no matter how hard you try, could be wrong. You, you might just be mistaken, but God's not. God's never wrong. God's never mistaken. God knows what he's doing. Therefore, trust the one who actually knows what he's doing instead of putting all your trust in yourself, considering that you are essentially wicked and incapable to begin with. What sense does it make? Here, I'll put it this way. If we could find somebody who was always correct, who always knew, who you could always trust, who could always give you correct understanding and wisdom, and then we had somebody who we know is a devoted, corrupt, wicked liar, who are you going to pay attention to? Who are you going to listen to when it comes to real important life lessons? Are you going to listen to the person who really knows what they're talking about? Or are you going to go to the guy who is a known wicked liar? Okay, so in that scenario, you are the known wicked liar. Why are you listening to you? I mean, your heart is deceitful above all things, and who can know it? And yet we're constantly listening to us. When God has already given us sufficient answers, sufficient grace, sufficient promises that we ought to be trusting him with our whole hearts, with our whole understanding, instead of leaning on our own cleverness. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. In all your ways, says verse 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him. In all your ways. It means no matter what you're doing, the same way that the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord, recognizing that God gave you this to do, 
So whatever it is you're doing, so whatever it is you're doing, do it in the recognition that God gave it to you to do. So do it in a way that would be pleasing to him. Same idea. Whatever you're doing in all your ways, in every aspect of your life, acknowledge him. It's a lot of the reason that we pause to pray before we eat. Because sitting to eat is a good reminder to us. Oh, yeah, that's right. I should thank God. He gave me something to eat. It's a lot of the reason that a lot of us pray at the end of the day because going to bed, okay, that's a good reminder in our brain. Oh, yeah, I'm going to bed. I should pray. I'll pray before I go to sleep. It's the same reason a lot of us pray when we wake up because you wake up in the morning, you go, oh, yeah, what's the first thing I do? Oh, that's right. I should pray. Well, what he's saying here is don't just acknowledge him in those moments when you have inspiration because there's food in front of you or you're going to sleep or you're in trouble or something like that. He's saying in every way, in everything, in all your life, constantly acknowledge him. I think I've told you this story before. I think I probably have. Uh, I knew a pastor out in Los Angeles who had one of those watches, one of those digital watches, one of those irritating little digital watches that would beep. You could set an alarm on it. And he set his alarm to beep every 15 minutes. And when you would be sitting chatting with him or whatever else, this thing would be going, and then it would stop. And after a while, it just became so irritating. I said to him, what is that? Why is that doing that? And he said, I did that on purpose because every time it beeps, it's, it's like having a, a rubber band around your thumb to remind you of something. Every time that beeps, it reminds me God's here. Suddenly, it went from being a really irritating beep to being a really good idea because he was training his own self-awareness every 15 minutes to realize, oh, yeah, God's here. So whether he was driving or whether he was visiting, whether he was eating, whatever he was doing, oh, yeah, God's here. Well, that's essentially what Solomon's saying. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Be aware that he's with you. Be aware that he exists and that he's participant in every aspect of your life. So he says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. You're going to see a couple references to this, the idea of walking the straight path. Keep your eyes focused. Don't look to the right or the left. Only look ahead of you. Walk on that straight line. That's the whole idea of living your life in such a way that you're not distracted to the right or left, that you're on that straight and narrow path that Jesus even speaks of. Walking out your life in a way that is focused on God. And he'll make your paths straight. And do not be wise in your own eyes. I think that's just like him saying, don't lean on your own understanding. Now he's saying, don't think that you're clever. Don't start thinking too much of yourself. And don't be wise in your own eyes. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So first reverence God and turn away from evil. So this is very much like we, what we've been talking about the past couple of Sundays, that if you fear God, if you bear the name of Christ, if you say that he has saved you, then it ought to be reflected in the way you walk, in the way you talk, in the way you conduct your life. And in conducting your life, 
because you fear God, you turn away from the evil things. Which also implies, by the way, that you know it's evil when you see it. And most of the time, you do. You know it was evil to begin with, and you made some kind of conscious choice to turn away or to entertain it or to just mess around with it a little bit. Just dip your toe in it. Just, oh, I'm a strong Christian. I can, I can, uh, I can mess around on the edges of this. He doesn't give you that option. Solomon says, fear God, turn away from the evil. Whatever that evil thing in your life is, get rid of it. It will, verse 14, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So, verse 9, honor the Lord from your wealth. Yes, that is a giving message. Yes, Solomon went right to remember to give your first fruits. That's the second half of verse 9. From the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty, and so that your vats will overflow with new wine. He understood the concept of the first fruits. The first of the harvest belongs to God, and that's a way of guaranteeing that you have a healthy harvest in everything else. So he says, give your first fruits of all your produce to God, and then your barns are going to be filled with plenty, and your vats are going to overflow with new wine, and that whole thing falls under the heading of honor the Lord with your giving. It's one of the ways that we can honor God. Recognizing that God has given you everything you have, then giving something back to God is not really even giving him anything. It's just simply recognizing how much he's given you, and you, in recognition of him, have offered something back to him in recognition that he's the one that's going to supply full barns and plenty of wine and make sure that you have everything you need. He's going to make your paths straight. He's going to deliver you from evil. He's going to see you through this life. And so you need to honor him. You want to honor him. You want to make sure that he knows that you prioritize him in your life. The Bible says time and time again, one of the best ways to do that is to give. And notice here, this isn't even give to the poor. This isn't even tithe to the barns that go to the widows or that you know support the priesthood or anything. This is directly give gifts to the Lord. Take sacrifices to God. So honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. Does it sound like Solomon assumes that the Lord does discipline? Absolutely. He recognizes that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's where the writer of Hebrews got that idea. He didn't just make that up out of whole cloth. He didn't just go, oh, here's a really good theological concept. I think I'll make this up. He got it directly from Solomon's Proverbs because Solomon wrote, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof which means his correction of you. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. 
And then Solomon draws the direct connection that the writer of Hebrews draws. Even as a father, he'll reprove the son in whom he delights. So the son that he loves, the son that makes him happy, is also the son that he's going to correct. Here, I can make this easy for you. James, have I ever reproved or corrected you? Several times, more than several. Like, <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> fine. Exactly. Many times through your life. Jeff, yes. have I ever reproved or corrected Christian or Paul? Not that you know of. Yeah, you know why? Yeah, not my kids. But the kids that are my kids, those are the ones I reprove. And that's the same idea here. If you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, God, because he loves you, is going to correct you, is going to reprove you, is going to put you on the right path because he delights in you. Or, well, I'll put it this way. Jeff, <laughs> if Christian or Paul act up, do I get concerned? No, not really. No. Because I figure you got it. You'll handle it. And if you don't, Jen will. And so I just, I, I, I don't worry about it. If my son acts up, to this very day, son, will I reprove you? Yes. Yeah, and I do that because I love you, I delight in you, and that's why I don't want to see you be anything less than everything you should be, right? Yes. Same relationship is being described here when Solomon says, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or hate, loathe his reproof, his correction of you. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves the son in whom he delights. Turn over to Hebrews 12 for a minute. Let's see Hebrews 12, because I actually do think that Hebrews 12 is the New Testament commentary on that idea, because the writer of Hebrews does expand on it a little bit. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll start right around verse 6. Actually, we'll start at verse 4 only because I like the verse. Verse 4 of Hebrews 12 says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And now he quotes from the Proverbs, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. King James says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's Christian and Paul being disciplined by Jeff because he's their father and he loves them. That's why James is disciplined by me. I'm his father and I love him. So the writer of Hebrews asks the question, doesn't any father that loves his son discipline his son? 
But if you are without discipline, he says in verse 8, of which all are partakers, the discipline of God, all the children of God, all the sons of God, all participate in the discipline of God. But if you've never been under that discipline from God, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. King James says, you're bastards. Which, as a young Lutheran boy, I shouldn't tell you this, was just very exciting to find out. You know, it was just, it's right there in the Bible. Okay, so. If you're without discipline, apparently discipline from God, of which all become partakers, all those whom God loves, he disciplines. Well, if you've never been disciplined, you're an illegitimate child, and you're not the sons of God. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. Can I get a witness? Amen. Yeah, I certainly did. And we ended up respecting them. Son, yeah. you have any respect for me? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very proud to say that 31 years later, on a Wednesday night, my son, who owns a car and could be anywhere doing anything, is sitting here listening to his father teach the Bible. That's an exceptionally good thing. And he has respect for me despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, that I did discipline him. I was a disciplinarian. But I was convinced that the discipline would pay off long term and that he would walk in a way that was appropriate for our household. Same deal. Same relationship. God disciplines all those children that are his children so that they will walk in a way that is appropriate for the profession that they make. And if you have not undergone that kind of discipline, you don't belong to God. If you belong to God, he will discipline you because he loves you. Furthermore, we all had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them, so shall we not much rather be subject to the Father, to God, to the Father of spirits, and live? If we subjected ourselves to our earthly fathers and their discipline, shouldn't we much more subject ourselves to the discipline of God, who is the Father of spirits, and live eternally? Because they... Our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. I think my son would argue about that short time thing. But they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our own good. The contrast there is our earthly fathers disciplined us for their good according to what they preferred. I wanted peace in my house, and you're not doing that. And so I would discipline it out of them. Don't be like that. Don't do like that, because that's what I preferred. But he's saying where God is concerned, he disciplines us for our own good, so that we are going to be conformed into the people that he wants us to be. He disciplines us for our own good, so that we might share in his holiness. That's the point of the discipline of God, is to separate us from the world. And here again, philosophically, that concept of 
or even theologically, that concept of God disciplining us to increase our holiness implies that God doesn't want us to be like the rest of the world, who he does not discipline, who he does not drive toward holiness, who he did not give the Holy Spirit. But those of us who do have the Holy Spirit, who do have the discipline, are being disciplined by God for our own good because he is increasing our holiness and changing the way we walk and talk and behave as we serve out our earthly lives. It's the same thing over and over again, whether we're talking about it on Sunday mornings out of the book of Romans, whether we're going to talk about it out of the book of Proverbs, whether we're looking at it here out of the book of Hebrews, it's always, if you belong to God, act like it. Act like it. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. Now, all discipline for the moment is no fun. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And yet, to those who have been trained by that discipline, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay, back to Proverbs. So there is a very genuine benefit to undergoing the discipline of God. The discipline of God increases your holiness, and the end result of it is peaceful fruit. That peaceful fruit between you and God of righteousness. And that's the whole purpose for which God disciplines us, and the writer of Hebrews That was his commentary on what Solomon said very briefly when Solomon said, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father reproves a son in whom he delights. That takes us to verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom. And the man who gains understanding. These are two different things. Wisdom and understanding. It's one thing to have the accumulation of knowledge. It's another thing to have the wisdom to know what to do with that knowledge. It's another thing to really have comprehension of the information that you've brought in. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom... And the man who gains understanding, you're going to see Solomon kind of divide those out in just a moment. For its profit is better than the profit of silver, and its gain is more gain than fine gold. And now he personifies wisdom again in the feminine gender and says she is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy, blessed, satisfied are all those who hold fast to her, who cling to her, who hold on to wisdom Now, why is wisdom so valuable? Why is it better than silver and better than fine gold? Why does it lead to life? 
Why can he say that wisdom has that exalted a stature in our lives? Because, verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. And look, if God himself exercised that kind of wisdom, then you want that. That's something you want to engage in. You want to cling to wisdom because it's by wisdom that God founded the earth. And by understanding, he established the heavens. And by his knowledge, the deeps were broken up. So there you see wisdom, you see understanding, and you see knowledge. All referenced as individual parts of what it is to be really well-versed and intelligent. It's not just the accumulation of facts. It's also knowing what to do with those facts. And it's also having comprehension of what the facts mean and how to put them all together to bring them to an appropriate end. It's wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Verse 21, my son, let them, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, let them not depart from your sight. Keep sound wisdom. That's whole, healthy wisdom. Let sound wisdom and discretion keep those so that they will be life to your soul, like an adornment to your neck. And then, having said all that, Having recognized God, having recognized God in all your ways, honoring God with your wealth, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. If that's the way you're going to be, then you're also going to walk like it. They will become life to your soul and an adornment to your neck, and then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. That means like caught in a snare. You're not going to be trapped. You're not going to have fear in this lifetime. You're going to walk securely because it's God who has given you straight paths that you can walk on. And then right from there, he turns to from the Lord being your confidence and the Lord is going to keep you from being caught in a trap. He goes right to practical wisdom and says, and do not withhold good from those to whom it's due. I think that has to do with paying a man a wage. If you've got somebody who has worked in your field all day, at the end of the day, pay him. If it's within your power to do good to somebody, then do it. And don't withhold good from those to whom it's due. You owe them something. You owe a man a wage when it's in your power to do it. You have the money, you could pay him, but don't say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow. In other words, if you owe it, pay it. If you owe someone what's due, pay them and don't hesitate on it. Don't hold on to their money by telling them, you go and you come back and tomorrow I'll give it to you when you actually have it with you. That's very, very practical advice that has to do with being honest and true and kind to people. And notice that he butted that right up against 
honor God, follow God, listen to God, follow after wisdom. Remember that God made the worlds by wisdom. And then the Lord is going to be your confidence and he's going to keep your foot on that straight and narrow. And since that's the case, be honest with people, be kind to people, pay people what you owe them. So the practical advice comes right on the heels of respect God. So if you respect God, if you worship God, if you remember God in all your ways, then whatever your ways are, are going to reflect the fact that you worship and honor and fear God. And he brought it down to the most practical of things, which is if you hire somebody, pay them. If you have the money in your pocket, don't tell them, go away and come back tomorrow and I'll pay you. Instead, if you have the power to pay them today, pay them today. That's how you be fair. That's how you be honest. That's how you be right with people. So fear of the Lord leads to proper living with other people. Verse 29 says the same basic thing. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. If, the, if you've got a neighbor living near you, who believes that you're trustworthy and he's living at peace near you, don't take advantage of the fact that he trusts you in order to go over there and make up, devise some kind of harm for him. That's very, very practical advice is my point. It's practical living advice that is a result of fear God. Honor God in all your ways. And one of the ways that you honor God, one of the ways that you make it obvious that you revere God is how you treat other people do not contend with a man without a cause even if or especially if he has done no harm to you do not envy a man of violence in other words if you see somebody causing some violence don't wish you could be part of that don't wish you could get in with violent people Do not choose any of his ways. That man of violence, don't be like him. For the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, and he, the Lord, is intimate with the upright. So he's saying the same thing two different ways. A crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, but he, the Lord, is intimate with upright people. So be upright, because after all, that's your father. He's your son. You are intimate with him. You are family with him. And if that is the case, then you ought to be walking like it. By the way, oh, I'm running out of time. But let me just say very, very briefly. Notice the word that Solomon used here. The crooked man is an abomination to the Lord. It's the same word that is used in the law to describe the various different sins and sinful people that are an abomination to the Lord. And while I'm not saying that the abominable things in the law are any less abominable, I am saying, look what else is. Because when we look at the abominable things in the law, we're very quick to say, man, the people who do that, Here, I'll give you an example. It's one that Janine and I talk about a lot. The law says that homosexuality is an abomination before God. I agree. Homosexuality, abomination before God. But so is the dishonest man. 
so is the crooked man. So is the man who has the ability to pay but keeps that money in his pocket. He also says, that's an abomination. So while I'm not trying to lessen the one, I'm saying, look at the other things. There are so many things that I think we just kind of gloss over. So many things that are also things like gossip, things like talebearing, that are equally abominable before God, but we like to concentrate on the ones we're not guilty of. So then it's easy for us to say, well, that guy over there, he's guilty of sexual sins. He's clearly an abomination before God. Man, get him, God. According to this, even just being dishonest with people, just walking crookedly rather than walking in a straightforward, honest fashion with people, thinking about doing harm to a neighbor, whatever kind of harm that may be, or walking with people of violence, that's what makes you into a crooked person, and being a crooked person is an abomination before God. You get my point? For the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, but he, the Lord, is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwellings of the righteous. And though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor but fools display dishonor. I don't think we really need to elaborate on any of those things. He's contrasting in each of those verses. He's saying the curse of the Lord is on one house, the blessing of the Lord is on the other. And what's the difference? Well, whether they're wicked, whether they're crooked, or whether they're righteous. He scoffs at scoffers. He gives grace to the afflicted. So those people who scoff at God who scoff at the people who walk after the course of God, the people of the world who hate those of us who love God, well, God's going to scoff at them the same way that they scoff at him or scoff at us. And yet that same God gives kindness, grace, unmerited favor to those of us who are afflicted and looking to him and recognizing him in all our ways. And the wise are going to inherit honor And the fool displays dishonor. I'm looking forward to that whole honor thing. Because just like we talked about on Sunday, if God wants to make you joint heir with everything he's going to give Christ, how much is that? And if God wants to display honor on his people, what's that going to look like? So I think there is plenty of impetus for walking uprightly for walking correctly, for walking straight paths. Next week in the next chapter, we're going to see him say, when you walk those paths, keep your eyes straight forward. Very much like Jesus saying, keep your eyes single. You know, don't look off to the right. Don't look off to the left. Don't wander off. Just walk that path that God has put in front of you and walk it honestly. Walk it in a way that is honoring to God. And recognize him in all your ways. Got the idea? Yes. Pretty good chapter, huh? Oh, yes. Okay. Questions? Ooh. Ooh. Everybody, collectively. Ooh. Ooh, it's starting to really pour out there. Looks like an ugly drive out there.
Questions, comments? Well, all right then. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.